out to three. Hello, I'm Drew. My pronouns are he, him, his. I am a general pediatrician in Tucson, Arizona with a large transgender medicine practice. And I'm Lisette. I am the mother of a 12-year-old trans child, a local advocate, and a small business owner. And your pronouns are she, her, hers. Thank you. I always say that. (laughs) And this is I Stand By You. With Lisette and Drew. Together, we talk about allyship. Building community. And showing up for one another. Welcome. All right, good morning. We are lucky to have Kristen Godfrey on here with us. They are a black queer organizer and activist currently living on the Hono Odom land. Uh, They attended the University of Tennessee where they received their master's in social work and um, they are currently doing uh, social work alongside LGBTQ youth. They organize as well around police terror, abortion rights, LGBTQIA oppression. And we are so excited to have them here on our podcast. As I had mentioned before um, to both Drew and Kristen, I spoke to them like two weeks ago about being on our podcast and we both were like, wow, people are really mad, but never in my mind would I have assumed or dreamt that we would see the show of solidarity and people in the streets protesting peacefully in the way that they are. And, and I have to be honest, like, I feel like grateful that Kristen, you're willing to still have this conversation. Cause I think like for many of us, it feels heavy. There's been days where I've just mm-hmm. sobbed. Um, and I'm sure that you both can empathize with that. Um, and so I, we had talked about what this conversation would look like, but really with the way things are, Kristen, you can guide that any which way you want. So I guess to get started, tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you into the activism that you do today. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, I mean, I was always like the annoying kid in my family being like, that's not right. (laughs) Like, I refuse to shop at Abercrombie because they don't have all sizes for people. I think I was like, that annoyed kid, but I don't think I really like became radicalized until Trayvon Martin was murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was murdered in Sanford, Florida, yes. and my mom lived there, so I was already at the U of A. Um, and my mom lived in the same neighborhood where Trayvon Martin was murdered, wow. and my little brother was like living with her. You know, he's like a little kid at this point, and I remember her calling me, and that that happened. And she broke her, she got out of that lease, I'm pretty sure, and she left because she was so terrified that something like would happen like that to my little brother. Mm-hmm. And so I think it being like right there in that neighborhood, like my mom and my little brother could hear the gunshot, uh. was kind of like, just, you know, it, it really just opened my eyes to say, I mean, it was hard too, because I grew up 
we didn't have money and my mom's and my mom's a single mom and so her goal for me was to always put me in the best schools and unfortunately in this country in this country that means mostly predominantly white schools so i grew up this black kid nerdy black girl <laughs> going to white schools and so i think my everyday situation was not matching up to like Trayvon Martin being murdered. So there was a lot of like cognitive dissonance going on for me. I was trying to figure out nuances of how can I have white friends that say they love me, but they're not saying shit about Trayvon Martin, mm-hmm. right? So I'm in college. I actually um, was an undergraduate assistant for Jennifer Ross Gordon in the anthropology department. So that's what kind of gave me the political education to go along with this, like cognitive dissonance that was going on for me. So she had a race class called Race at This is the American Dream. So I was doing that in undergrad. I get to grad school. Shit's still happening. Is it okay if I cuss? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, shit's still happening. Uh, Mike Brown's murdered in Ferguson. At Mm -hmm. this point, I'm at University of Tennessee. I go down to Ferguson. I think I go down to Ferguson, what, a month or two after he's murdered? Um, And I go see where he's murdered, and there's like a big... Um, protest. I see, you know, I see cops with these huge guns. I see army military tanks in the streets. And I'm realizing that this country um, is working exactly the way it's supposed to. And I mean, if they're bombing black and brown people around the world, they definitely don't care about the black people in this country. So I think I think I was like trying to figure out everything. And then when Mike Brown was murdered, that's when I was like, all right, like I have got to see myself in the streets. I've got to start educating myself. I've got to, def- I've got to know what I stand for and I've got to lead with what I stand for. Yeah. So that's when that kind of started. Um, I moved to Ohio after that and I joined a socialist organization, the international socialist organization. It doesn't exist anymore. But that organization is what made me become a Marxist-Leninist, and it gave me the theory um, to understand why everything is happening in this country and why I need to fight back. So that's kind of like my political journey. So where I stand now, um, I'm a, you know, I'm a Marxist. That's my theory to build on socialism, which gives me the answer to say capitalism is not working for anybody, even white working-class people. It does not work for you. You're being exploited. It doesn't work for queer people. It doesn't work for black people. It doesn't work for indigenous people whose land was stolen. It doesn't work for any of us. So social, we need to fight for a better world, which is socialism. So that's where I'm at now. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to build a better world in Tucson, Arizona. (laughs) Which is, yeah. I will say. I'm curious. Oh, go ahead. You said, you said radicalized. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you consider to be radicalized? I think there's a, so I think there's plenty of people who, and I think that's the brilliance of this moment. People are being radicalized. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think there's a difference between turning on the TV and being like, wow, that's wrong. And then you go to bed. Right. Mm -hmm. Or, well, that's wrong. I'll sign a petition, but I'm going to go like, it's fine. You know, if I have time, if I find the mor- morality in myself, <laughs> like, you know, then I'll, then I'll, you know, I'll figure out what I can do. But radicalization means that you see yourself in this fight and you have to get out there yeah. in any way that you're able. And I think that's what we're seeing people happen now. Like when I'm in these protests, people aren't just, I mean, 
it's just wild to me. I think I've cried more at protests than I have at home. Like, people are so angry, and they're they're connecting the dots that voting in November and shaming black people for throwing a rock is not doing anything. That they are literally in the streets being like, I know all cops are bad, but why? Like, please explain to me. Like, I know we need to abolish the police. I know we need to abolish ICE, but, like, explain to me, like, how it connects. Or, like, I know Tony McDade, a black trans man, was murdered and, like, nothing's being done. Like, why don't people care as much about Tony McDade as they do George Floyd? Like, these questions are being asked in the streets as they're protesting, knowing that this is not enough, as they're taking over streets. Like, that is radicalization. Like, that is understanding that, like, like, their voice has to be a part of this because they're not living this world that they thought they were living. Like, it's, it's like, it's like you find out it's a lie, right? Like, you're living a lie and you have to figure out how to find some sort of truth. To me, that's what radicalization is. I, I love that description because it doesn't sound big and scary for people who... Something about the word radical that people find so big and scary. Um, mm-hmm. And what you're describing is like, yeah, we're all in this. Yeah, and I think, what what does Angela Davis say? Like, radical just means, like, grasping things at the roots, right? So yeah. it's like, if I'm saying abolish the police, it's because I'm looking at the roots of how the police started, yes. right? If I'm saying I no longer want trans people to be treated like shit in this country... I'm trying to figure out the roots of gender oppression and colonialism and capitalism and why trans people are treated with respect, right? So that's just what it is. It's just like, I'm trying to figure out where this came from so that I can change it. It's a deep reckoning, right? Mm -hmm. It really is. I think that we are all grasping at what this means. Like I was just, for me, Mike Brown was the first time that I couldn't look away and say that the police were being military i can't say the word right now uh they were using military tactics i'd been to other parts of yeah i'm militarized sorry i'd been Uh, to other parts of the world and seen that and walked around in police states like tunisia or um and but i was always able to say but america isn't like this and when you saw the images of what was happening in ferguson it was For me, it was like the first movement in like, wow, okay, there's a, there's like, it's no longer hidden behind a veil. And I think for those of us that are, that are dealing with the intersections of being American in this country, it feels like a reckoning. Like I was reading this morning, actually, an article on the route around colorism which is predominant in Latinx cultures and Mexican, I'm Mexican, Mexican American. I was born here. Um, and there was, I remember carrying a lot of um, insecurity around my dark elbows and dark knees and um, the ways in which were sold leech cream or, um, and, I, and, I, and I'm talking about this in a very vulnerable way because I don't normally talk about all of these things. Or I, ta- or I talked to you too, Kristen, about model minority um, mm-hmm. perceptions that we carry and knowing that Christopher Cooper would have been essentially, if you looked at just surface, was that model minority and even in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, or even for me on Saturday, going up to a cop 
in riot gear and saying, I need to get to the other side because I have my child and I live on the other side of your line. And then telling me, we can't decide who's safe to let through. And knowing that 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 implication is so deep, right? Yeah. Um, when my 12-year-old is standing next to me. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that it's like this anger and this weird pain that I think we're all carrying. And it just feels like a reckoning. And then also, too, then having to then see people around you or online not even being able to grasp what your experience is or also dismissing your experience. Yeah. Which is, I, I don't even have a word for it. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I feel like what you say is so perfect because you're saying like people are in the street saying like, I know that there's a pain. I know that there's a thing. I know that this is happening and, and I, and I'm willing to push and, and, to push and shove for change. Yeah, exactly. Does that make sense? I feel like I just took us on a loop, but that's me trying to process it. I've been processing for like 10 days of like, what are we on day 12? Um, yeah, day 12. And it's just, and I'm ready to go again today, you know? And so it's like, I don't even know. I don't have words. How are you yeah. like processing everything? For me, I think I, um, well, I moved, so I lived in Tucson, I went to U of A, you know, and then I stayed for two years, and then I left for grad school, and then I worked for a bit in Ohio, so I've, like, always been trying to get back to Tucson, and so I've been here for over a year now, been back, and I'm so excited to be back, but one of the reasons I moved to Tucson was to build a socialist organization, um, because I believe in, in moments before stuff like this, that's when the most work needs to be done. Not when a police murder happens that's so in your face, that's so wrong, that proves to you that all cops are bastards, but the moments before, because that's when we have to become organized. People have to be joining organizations. People have to be in struggle. People, you know, like that's when your consciousness builds so that when moments like this happen, you have what you need, like you have your toolbox to fight against what's happening now. And so I was looking at Tucson, I was like, okay, like, Tucson needs some organization. So that's, like, one of the reasons I moved here. And, you know, it's, it's been rough, because I will say that Tucson is, like, a very, very, very liberal city. Any work that gets done, when there's an election, the election shuts down any radical work. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it, it's like even the teachers union, right? Everything, all that good work went into, okay, well, let's just vote and see if they'll, see if they'll, see if they'll help us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I guess, I guess I'll, I'm saying all of this because I have been really like hopeless before this, and I don't want to glorify this moment or say like anything of anything positive about this moment. Mm. Um, but before this moment, I have felt helpless because I have felt a need to organize with people, to build community with people, and so when moments like this happen, like I'm in my zone. I don't know how long I'm going to be in my zone. Honestly, I might burn out in like three months. But this is like, I I feel like I need to be doing things like this. So like I need to be protesting. I need to be talking to people about these kind of things. 
me and some radicals in Tucson are planning a teach-in on police terror, um, which I can talk more about if people are interested. Um, and so these kind of things are, are really helping me because I know sometimes, and I, and I, and like, and I want to talk about this, like, listen to black people thing too, because I don't think that's correct. But I know a lot of black folks in this moment are kind of like, you know, need time for themselves and which is totally like, I totally get it. But in this moment for me, like, I just got to keep working. Like I got to keep moving. Cause I really do think people are moving at such a fast pace that we mm -hmm. need to be like, we need to be catching up to them so that their answers, like, so that their questions can be answered because they can stay in the fight. This is like a lifelong thing. Not just like, okay, I'm done when this moment is over, you know? Mm. So that's kind of how I'm feeling. I feel sadness. I feel, I, I, I have a lot of anxiousness. And I think that ang the anxiety is coming from like, I just don't want it to stop in Tucson. Like I, I'm scared that um, people will say, okay, well, the police got charged, so we're done, you know, and I'm an abolitionist, so I, I don't believe in prisons. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, that anxiety is coming from like, I don't want this to stop. Like I want us to keep moving and it's going to take a lot to get some type of reckoning in this country. So we, there's, we don't have any, like, you know, we can't stop. Right. I guess that's how I'm feeling. You guys are making me feel a little bit old. Um, <laughs> because you talk about like Mike Brown being a big moment for you. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about, so the first time I ever thought to myself, there's something wrong with the police was the move bombing in Philadelphia in 1985. Um, where a quote-unquote radical group, which was yeah. really just community organizing, had mm -hmm. a flash bomb dropped on their building and killed women and children who were inside. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, I remember reading about that, yeah. And then the same thing, I remember seeing the videos of Rodney King. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... It's interesting, though, because it's taken me a really long time to figure out, like, yeah, this is wrong. And it doesn't feel like it's a bad, it, it's not a bad person. It's a bad system. And I hadn't even realized until very recently the whole idea of prisons and police not being necessary. Um, and I'd love to hear you kind of describe what that looks like in, in a world without police. Because the first time I heard about it, I was so like, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Well, I think we have to, I, I think we have to think about what was the world like before we had ICE, right? And I like to use this example because it's a more recent one, because I think like this, this whole um, immigration customs and enforcement, that was not created until after 9-11. Mm -hmm. So I think 9-11 was in 2001. We get ICE in 2002. Now, the, the president, the government has been able to use ICE in whichever way they like, right? So because we lived in that moment, we know the route, we know why it was created, we know it was for xenophobia, and we know that ICE was first created um, to discriminate against Muslims, to discriminate against Arabs, and then what the government does is when they create a system like that, they're able to turn it and flip it however they need to. Mm -hmm. So now ICE has been, has been turned into let's catch all undocumented people, let's catch all immigrants, right? Yeah. But, we, but we remember a world without ICE. We remember what it was like. We were, and, and, I, and I also wanna say that this country is built on 
you know, the labor and enslavement and genocide of black people and indigenous people. And so with that, there's always been this fight with labor, right? Because the U.S. the U.S. ain't shit. The ruling class ain't shit. They're too lazy to do it on their own. They need cheap labor. And so you can go back and forth in the history of this country and say, okay, Mexican people were classified as white. So then they can come into this country because we need their cheap labor. Oh, okay. It's too much. The economy's shit. White people need their money. White rich people need their money. Now you're classified as brown, not like not Hispanic or what, you know, or Hispanic on like these charts in the census because we don't need your labor. Because, you know, Americans need jobs, so go back. It's like this flip. It's like the switch. Yep. And it all has to do with labor, what this country needs. So yeah. I think ICE has been a, has been created to kind of be a part of that narrative of labor and racism and xenophobia. And so if we can think of a time when we didn't need, when we didn't have ICE, if we were all good, no, the only terrorists that was coming after us were cops, like not the Muslims or the Mexicans, right? Then we can say... There was a time in this country with no police. The police were created in different parts of this country for different reasons. So in the South, the police were created as slave patrols. If enslaved Africans um, escaped, this, this basically vigilante group, right, went out and got them and brought them back to their masters. They were slave patrols. In the North, as you saw, they were union. The police were created to bust unions. It was mostly like... Um, white people who weren't white yet, right? Italians and Irish, Mm -hmm. they were in factories and they were getting pissed and they were building their own unions because they didn't have any rights. They were being exploited. Um, The rich white people owned the means of production. Like they owned the factories, they owned the, the food shops. And then these white poor people had to go out and get jobs and they had to work them. But because they didn't own any of, the, any of the means, the bosses just told them what to do. So these people came together. They created unions, which, as you see, this, there's been a huge attack on unions right now in this country. But then the cops were created in the north to bust all that so that the bosses could actually exploit these people even more. And then in the west, out here, we see cops being created first as vigilantes, as white men believing in this country. And I'm going to get my gun and I'm going to say that this is my land and brown and indigenous people can't be here. So I think if we look at all of the, and the cops started at different times in different parts of the country. But I think if we look at different areas of this country, we can remember a time when there weren't any cops. Um, And I think that no human is meant to be like living in a cell. And, And I think that Prisons right now are not accountable. I hear a lot of, and I talk a lot about this with survivors a lot. Um, of course, if you're a survivor of sexual assault, you have the power to say, do you want to press charges, right? Do you want um, your rapist to go to jail? Sometimes the survivor says yes. Sometimes the survivor says no. Usually if you say yes, you have to go through this grueling process where the police that are sexist and racist and homophobic and transphobic sit you down and you have to give this huge testimony where they're basically saying you're lying, but you have to give it. And then usually your rapist doesn't get any time in jail. So what the cops, so what the system has done is prisons are not a place where actual bad people go. It's a place where they want to put people that they don't have to deal with. So most prisons are filled 
with black people who have probably what have like a little bit of weed on them or have been or have been caught in a bad situation because there's more cops in the hood than there are in the white suburbs where the kids smoke more weed um and they're, yeah. and they're filled with black brown and indigenous people that the country doesn't want to deal with Co like prisons are not filled with rapists and murderers and i think if that these if these protests stop all these cops have got these charges and we say, okay, like we're good. We believe you, government. We're going to go home. These cops also will not end up in prison. And prison's not even enough because the system was built for the cops to get out, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of the time, cops don't even fulfill their full sentence if they even do get a sentence. Yeah. Um, and so I guess that when I talk about being an abolitionist, when I talk about what could, what could happen, um, and I think people get stuck on that question because a lot of people's first response is, well, yeah, I don't like cops, but like, wh how would it be without cops? Right. Yeah. And I don't, and I don't think that's, that's the, that's the question. I think the question is what are, who's in prison now and why are they in prison? Because I think if we look at that question and then we look at statistics and all these people that are in prison shouldn't be in prison we know that we've done something, that this government has done something incredibly wrong. I'm going to um, share, um, yeah. I'm going to share a personal story really quick. And mm -hmm. to my family, I, they, cause I'm, I never, I, I, um, with my immediate family, I never talk like super harsh feeling, like hard feelings. Mm -hmm. but, um, cause you know, we just don't. Um, but my, uh, my grandfather and my grandmother immigrated in 1963. Um, mm -hmm. And so they came from Mexico, but we were border people. Like I have old, old photos of like my great grandparents sort of straddling the area. Right. Um, wow. And so they immigrated in 1963. Um, when I was six years old, my grandfather was, um, was stabbed to death multiple times. Um, just right here on Fourth Avenue, there used to be a little bar called the Brown Derby, and I grew up in the I lived in the neighborhood for a while, and then my parents moved me out to the suburbs. But there was a little bar called the Brown Derby, and he was walking home, and everybody knew each other back then, like in the eighties, in the early eighties. The neighborhood was all they it was it was a lot of immigrants, it was a lot of um, people, and everyone knew each other along the streets. And my grandfather was the second person this person attacked. Um, but he was 17 and he was um, coming off of drugs and looking for more money, right? I don't know what the right, well, he was in withdrawals, I think. And I remember waking up in the emergency room and it was the 80s. So like there wasn't like, I remember waking up and being able to see things, right? And then being shoved kind of out of the area. And I think about him often and I know my mom does too because he spent a majority of his life in prison. He just got out, like, I believe four years ago. Wow. And I told my mom, I remember we had this long talk, and my mom was like, it's so hard because I miss my dad every day, but I couldn't, I couldn't conceive of him. And I was like, I, I, I told my mom, he, he grew up in such a horrible environment, right? Like when really he probably needed rehabilitation. You know, and to spend 17 to your, I'm sure he's like in his 50s now, right? Wow. Um, to spend your whole life there. 
um, I just can't imagine. And I remember being in like, in like, you know, fifth grade and you start learning about like the death penalty and all these Uh things. And I remember I wrote this really strong paper about how I didn't believe in the death penalty. And I just, and I was like, even though my grandfather was hurt, I just couldn't conceive of someone else dying because of something. Right. And I think about all the atrocities that we experience, like you just, you, cause you've touched on things that are like sinking in. Like my husband's dad was a bracero and he tells stories about when he would come up to work the fields up here, that they uh-huh. would spray them with, um, DT. What's it called, honey? DDT. DDT. Spray their bodies. Um, Or, you know, one of my best friends, her grandmother was born in the United States and was one of the many, many hundreds of Mexican labor, child labor, uh, working fields with her family who were picked up in raids and sent to Mexico and without paperwork. And it took her 30 years to make it back to her own country that she was born in. And so I think you're talking not only... And I'm not trying to center this on, I'm just talking my experience, but we don't yes, even, so many times we don't even think about how close we touch these atrocities, right? Yeah. Because we, uh-huh. we want to stay comfortable. I know there are parts of me that wants to, that wants to be comfortable, that doesn't want to disrupt my comfort. And, uh-huh. and so I think we're seeing all this stuff happen and we're unpacking all of that, right? And understanding that for as much as we work hard or we try to move forward, we still touch these systems every day. Yeah. And I think think, you're talking about that, right? About how we interact all the time. And I think that's the hardest part about this is we're literally like begging people and forcing people to put themselves in this, right? Like, to say that, like, I have to be out there, not because I understand what black people go through, but because I know that my life, I'm not living my best life because of what's of the way that this country was founded. And I think all of your examples now, like, it's uncomfortable, but it's like you have to look at your own life to say oh my gosh, like, I'm oppressed too. Like, my family has literally been exploited for this country. And so, yes, I'm out there for black people, but I'm also out there for myself. Like, this is miserable. Like, nobody should live this way, right? Nobody should, like, I don't want my kids to have those experiences. I think And it's like you have to, yeah, it's like you, it's like you have to connect yourself to this moment. You have to see yourself in it. Yeah. And that's, that's what solidarity is versus allyship. Like, you have got to see yourself in this fight And you've got to realize that you could be living a better life if the police were abolished, too. Like, right? Like, you Mm -hmm. would actually get something out of it, too. And my stepbrother, he's African-American. He wrote this really long post to his friends that were, like, posting All Lives Matter, right? Uh And Uh I think that... And I didn't share it because he's like, Lizette, don't share my words, you know? Um, (laughs) But I think about the long conversations I've had with family and friends, or like even in the advocacy work I do with Daniel and trans youth, I've had, I've called my mom friends who have black trans daughters and a black son, right? And they're living in this moment and thinking about the the safety of both of their children. And so that's when you know the work is so beyond you because, Mm -hmm. because you love them and you, 
you know, I was on the phone with one of my mom friends and her trans daughter asked to be put on speaker yesterday. And she told us that she watched the video of Ayana D. Ayana. Um, I'm so Dior. I'm with it. Yeah. Thank you, Ayana Dior. And she's 17. And I was like, oh, I really wish you wouldn't have watched it. And she yeah, told me that was rough. And she told me, but it's it's my experience. Uh-huh. Like that's the that could happen to me. Yeah. And that just hits you. Like it's like a punch in the gut. And and it becomes a like I'm in a space where like I can't like if I if I love these people, I can't look away. I can't not participate. And mm-hmm. and I know that's where you were talking about solidarity. How do we get people to see that, to be a part of this solidarity movement that you were talking about? Because we touched on coalition building, and you were like, "No, Lizette, we got to build solidarity." Yeah, which is, which I think does include coalition building. But I think first to talk about solidarity, I want to talk about like the way that we were raised in this country to think about history. Mm-hmm. Because I would argue that the way that, like, history classes were taught or the way that we talk about history is history is just static and it's a fact and it just goes on. And as as history goes on, things just will get better, right? Like, things just get better. And so, yeah, it's really tough now. But if we have hope and we keep voting and we have some allyship, then, like, it, by 2025, things will be better. And I think that 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 the way that we look at history that way really, really benefits the people at the top in this country because it silences us. Mm. And we just do like some individual stuff to maybe help somebody near us, right? Mm -hmm. But the fact is that history is fluid. It's in motion and it can be changed. And it's like a pendulum swinging. So we're taught history just keeps moving forward. But in fact, it's a pendulum. History moves back and it moves forward and it moves back. And the only way that it moves forward is by humans, the working class people, the people who have to sell their labor to survive. We push it forward. Hmm. We are the ones who says enough is enough. We move it forward. And we move it forward because we, we base it off of our material needs. So we base it off of, I need a job so that I can pay for shelter. I can pay for housing. I can pay for food. I can pay for my kids to have a good life. And that's how history moves. But I think if we're taught that history is just static and eventually things get better, that we literally, that we, we don't have to go into the streets. We don't have to do anything. And it's a lie. The only way that things get better is if people take over shit. And if, if working class and poor people put themselves out there and say, enough is enough, my life is not getting any better. I have to get out there and I have to do something. And I don't think it's morality. I don't think it's the goodness out of people's hearts that changes things. It's not about changing people's hearts and minds. It's about getting working class people to understand that you're being exploited every day, that class is a part of this. And, and, you know, intersectionality is a part of this, too, right? So, like, I'm a working-class person, but I'm also queer and I'm black. So what what happens when all of those intersections coincide? Like, it's like a car collision, right? Mm-hmm. So in my life, I'm evaluating that car collision. But, you know, a white person who's says, hey, might just, but works at the grocery store, right, only makes $10 an hour, 
might only be looking at that class piece, right? Like I'm exploited, I get no PTO, my healthcare shit, right? And so that they have a piece in this too, because mm-hmm. you're being exploited too by the boss, right? And so we all might have different pieces, but we're all pissed. And I think that that is why we need solidarity, that all of us have to see ourselves in this fight. Obviously, the best people out there are recognizing that I got to show out and I got to have solidarity for people whose experiences are different than mine, right? Like, I have to be out there for black people. I have to be out there for trans people. But also, white people are lied to, right? And I, I think white people obviously have privilege. Obviously, your life is different than mine. Obviously, you're less likely to get killed by cops. Now, class, white poor people are getting killed by cops a lot. We don't talk about it, right? Mm. But I think mm-hmm. privilege is real, and, and, and experiences are different. Um, but I think if people do not realize that they're a part of this struggle, if they won't do solidarity, they'll do allyship. They'll do little individual things that they might have a little time for instead of solidarity, which is this lifelong commitment to struggle. And what I mean by struggle is this willingness to be, I I guess to, to be in, to be willing for your consciousness to always be expanding. And so struggle doesn't stop after this movement. Like let's say this movement died tomorrow and you say you're in solidarity with oppressed people all around the world you're still doing work because solidarity cannot sustain itself, right? Mm -hmm. So if if this is over tomorrow and you're like, okay, I said I was in solidarity, but like now I'll just wait till the next movement pops off. Like that's not solidarity. Solidarity is always being in the struggle because you need your consciousness to keep expanding and you need to be understanding why things are the way they are. And you always have to be in this mode of working to make things better. Yeah. Um, Instead of just like, okay, I showed up for this movement and now I'm done, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that solidarity is so important because it it must continually be reinforced. Like it, It's like you always need to be around people. You always need to have community that's telling you like, hey, this isn't right. The, the life that you're living is not right. You can live such a better life. Black people can have such a better life. Trans, trans people can have such better lives. So you're always thinking about how can I be in the struggle with the oppressed to make things better? Um, and so, and I guess that's what solidarity is for me. But I think that piece of how we look at history is so important because you have to see yourself in it and you have to recognize that if you don't show up, history just won't get better, right? It's It's not just a, okay, well... You know, like I said, 2025, it'll be better. Um, And I think that's why people rely so heavily on voting. And I'm not saying anything bad about voting. If you vote, go do it. But But I think the way that we look at history, it's very easy for people to go out and vote every four years and sit back and do nothing when literally voting is the smallest form of action you can take in this country. Vote and then go in the streets. Vote and then do political education. Vote and then feed poor people. Vote and then house homeless people, right? Like, that is the smallest piece you can do if you really want to be in solidarity with oppressed people in this country. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about history, it also, I, it, remarkable parallels to the way religion is used there as well. Yeah. Um, the idea that everything will end in a perfect place no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think that's that's a real problem as well. Yeah. Yeah, because it won't. I mean, it will yeah. it will not get better unless we all see ourselves in this movement and we go out there and we fight. It, I, it will not get better. Because the only wins we have seen is when there are hundreds and thousands of people fighting for something better. Like, we need numbers. Because we are, I mean, if you think about it, people who are just getting a paycheck to survive and poor people, there are more of us than there are people at the top. And so the only way we'll win, the only, like, if you see these standoffs on TV with cops, if you notice the only time people win when they're in the streets is if it's more of them than there are cops. Yeah. That's, that's just, that's just, we just need humans. We need people out there who recognize that their body is needed on the line. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think we don't get the size crowds with our protests here in the United States compared to other countries? I mean, I think about like the Arab mm. Spring rebellions. I mean, mm-hmm. it was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Um, yeah. Um, And I don't understand why we don't see the same levels. I think it has to do with comfort. Yeah, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say, I think it has to do with comfort. This idea of American exceptionalism and that we live in the best country, so don't blow it up kind of thing. But I could be wrong. I mean, what, what do you think, Kristen? Yeah, I think it's that too. I think um, I don't know. Well, I don't. Honestly, I don't think we have comfort. I think that we are forced to believe that we have comfort. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, yeah, like I'm living paycheck, paycheck to paycheck, but there's some type of comfort in that that the U.S. forces us to think about, right? Mm-hmm. I think this country. I think it's not the way other countries are. Um, is because we have not been taught any of this history about people power, about like the simple things in our life that we just think is just a right have been fought for. Mm. And like the eight hour workday, like that just seems so like common sense to American people. Like people were murdered for the eight hour workday. Yeah. You know, like people have been murdered in this country for the simplest things, but they, this country is very good at not teaching us about people power. Um, and like other countries actually get to learn those kind of things or, you know, their, their, their ancestors and, and their families are, are reminding them of these types of battles. Um, and we're just sitting back like, what? Like, you know, like they literally teach us that protests don't work. Like I see people on Facebook, like protest isn't, isn't working as we're seeing factually <laughs> new things come out every day, new wins. But I don't think we're given that piece of history, um, which is which is really sad. Yeah, I also feel like, and and I I can only speak to my experience, but there's Mm -hmm. like certain things like like when that old man was knocked to the ground by police. Yeah, I had all these white people telling me like not like but don't focus on him because what they do to black people is worse and i think sometimes like i think sometimes people aren't seeing that we as poc or black people are actually looking at that from the lens of if they did that to a 75 year old white man Uh that just reinforces the idea 
right? Like I remember yeah. I was sitting in a room after Trump had won. And there was all these, I was, it was a predominantly white space and they were all crying and talking about how awful it was that Trump had won. And I, in my, in my, and they, I think they thought I was crazy because they couldn't see it from my perspective because I wasn't crying and I kept asking probing questions, but like, why are you this afraid? Like, is it, is it? And they were like, Lizette, of course, this is awful. These are things that could potentially happen. But in my brown mind, I was trying to gauge whether this was the first time they'd had felt oppre- like oppression in a deeper yeah. form. And if this was, or if they were truly afraid because now the oppression was amplified in a different way, that meant I had to be more afraid. Does that make exactly. sense? And yeah. so sometimes when I get that response from white people that are like, you know, they're like, well, you know, but like, we don't want to center a white person. And I appreciate that they're trying to utilize and look beyond and truly stay focused on the fact that black lives matter. Right. Yeah, I'm just yeah. trying to discern like where we fit in the scheme of violence or in the scheme of oppression. And I think people forget that when we make comments sometimes or I'm like, oh, my God, this was jarring because he was 75 and white and they just knocked him over and let him bleed. Um, yeah. And so, like, where does that put us on the ladder? Right. And and it sounds awful. Like I, I'm saying it out loud and it sounds awful to even think that we are viewing it from a lens of like, you can tell me if I'm wrong in this moment, but viewing it from a lens of like, where do we, then how, like, how do we protect ourselves in this moment? Cause that's yeah. what I'm thinking too. Like, how are we, prote- how do we protect ourselves? How do we like really kind of soak in what's happening and mm-hmm. and actively participate for change, but also take care of ourselves and take care of our black siblings and move forward in a way where where like because I also feel like what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of allyship in the streets. We're seeing a lot of people coming out and moving forward. But I feel like with all movements, the most marginalized are the ones that push hardest. Right. Like if we have a thing around trans youth, it's always the families that are going to show up with their kids. And you know what I mean? It's the people that are most impacted. So when Why I isn't see, everybody showing up? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I see these images, I'm trying to see like the scope of it and what does it mean? Right? Yeah. Does that make well, sense? I think we, yeah, I think we have the capability in the same breath to say that what happened to that white man and it just came out that he has been an activist, like a peace activist, like his whole life. Wow. Like, we, in the same breath, we can say that that was awful. And yeah. if they're doing that to him, they're coming for all of us. While at the same time saying black people are treated, like, actually, black and indigenous people are treated the worst by police. Yes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think it's like we're forced. It's like this oppression Olympic. Yeah. Like, well, I can't, like, I can't talk about white people. I remember I lived in Columbus. This white, poor boy who lived in, like, this, like, even, like, the hoods in Columbus, Ohio are segregated. Um pretty often and this white um boy who was like pretty poor it's a poor working class white neighborhood in the hood he had to go to court to juvenile court and you know when you go to juvenile court you have to go through like scanners so obviously he had nothing on him he a cop shot him after he was in juvenile court waiting for his court because he got an attitude with the cop it is definitely okay to say that that is wrong while in the same breath saying that I'm in the streets today 
for George Floyd because that that's what's happening, right? Like it's okay. Like I I don't I don't think it's wrong to talk about white people being mistreated, like working class poor white people being mistreated as well, as long as we're centering the most oppressed. Yeah. But I think that's been my issue right now. I just see a lot of POC and white people saying, listen to white voices. Or, sorry, <laughs> listen to black voices. Like, that is the thing that I see everywhere. Listen to black people. Listen to black women. Listen to black queer people. And to me, I think that's racist. Because black people have so many different opinions. Like, a black person could listen to this podcast right now and be like, what is this person talking about? Right? Like, <laughs> we have so many different opinions. Right, it's not a monolith. Yeah, for a white person just to say, listen to black people, what does that mean? You still need to have an opinion. You still need to read Angela Davis. You still need to read about why cops are bad. You still need to form your own opinion before you go out and just pick a black person who agrees with you the most. Mm -hmm. Like, And I think that it, um, no name, she's a rapper out of Chicago. She's been radicalizing so quick, I can't keep up with her. Um, She's like a socialist now. She just put out this statement that was like, do not just listen to black people. Listen to revolutionaries. Listen to people who want to stop capitalism and white supremacy. Like this listen to black people thing has got to stop. Because that is, I mean, that is just, that's just straight racism to me. Just to say I'm going to listen to you because of who you are. Because even the white people who are choosing to listen to black people, they're picking the black people whose opinion is closest to theirs. And it keeps them from doing any type of reading to figure out where they actually stand. Right. Um, and that's the biggest issue with me is like, but I mean, that does, this just doesn't make sense to me. Like you have to have an opinion Yeah. and you have to read just like I'm reading. Like you have to, like you have to have this political education so that, because if you do not have that political education and you just, and you just text me and said, Hey, I'm coming to the protest tonight. I'm listening to Kristen because she's black. And you're just out there because you listen to me because I'm black. And then the cops start shooting pellet and tear gas is out. Your ass is going to be out of there because you really don't have the politics to understand why you're out there to begin with. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to have my back. Like you have to sincerely know what your politics are and you have to lead with those politics if you're actually going to have a black person's back at, in the streets. Yeah. Yeah. And what you're saying is fair because I have friends that I've grown up with here that have way different political leanings than yours. Right. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, I have friends that their dad was a police officer. And so this is hitting them at that intersection of like the reality of police brutality and where they fit as a black person. Right. Uh And so I'm, watching them all process we're all processing where what we value and what we stand for in this moment but i think it is important for you to talk about the fact that it is not a monolith right like black people are not a monolith latinx people we there's like 30 countries or more i don't know um that we all come from and have different Mm -hmm. understandings and share different values and so i think that um, I think that it's so important to say that, like, uh, please don't come to me as your Mexican friend to learn all that. Th- I'm Chicana. I'm Chicanex. I'm from here. Yeah. And my experience and my understanding is different from my husband's. Right. And so yeah. I think that what you're saying is so valid and so important. And yeah. and I see like I have a couple of 
friends who are white that are just, they feel like pedals in the wind because like they're trying to be there and they're trying to learn and they're getting all of this information and being told that they have to say it this way or be this way or, and they're like, I feel like sending me texts and I'm like, don't worry. Like you have to, you have to see what it is that you value and what it is that you want. And you have to mess up. Like I think my biggest learning moments is when I have messed up and I've had somebody in my life who's really cared for me to say, no, that's not how it is. Or let's read this book together or let's really understand why you think that way. Mm -hmm. Like it's like white people already have this privilege and then it's like they don't want to mess up and they don't want to seem like they're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. When in my eyes, you're already doing something wrong if you're not pursuing that education to learn what's happening you know um so you have i mean you have to mess up and that's for everybody like you just have got to mess up to understand what you need to learn you've got to fail a little bit so we're gonna take a pause for a second and then um continue this conversation because i want to talk about coalition building and solidarity if we can okay yeah all right Okay, Kristen, so we had just uh, left off saying we want to continue the conversation around solidarity and coalition building. I always use the analogy of like, if all of our movements are little rowboats, right? Mm -hmm. How do we tether them together to get over the large wave? Mm -hmm. And so what are your ideas around that? Like, how do we do that moving forward? Yeah, um... Huh, how do we do that moving forward? I have so many thoughts. Let me think about... (laughs) Okay, what do I want to talk about first? Um, I think that before we even get into coalition building, I think that people have to join organizations. Mm. Because if... I think organizing is very hard, and most of us are out here just individual organizers trying to show up. But, like, because we're exploited every day we're going to get tired and we're going to burn out. Mm-hmm. I don't care how much you take care of yourselves, like the self-care thing. The only self-care that means anything to me is not like wine in a tub. It is community. Mm-hmm. You have to have community so that if you can't show up to the protest, you have no guilt. You can take care of yourself because you know your organization is representing you. You have to be a part of something that's bigger than you because you can't do it alone. And I think this whole individualism, nuclear family that the U.S. runs on really keeps us from building community. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's first. So join an organization. It it doesn't matter if you're like, well, I agree on these politics, but this is iffy. Get in there and say, okay, how can we do this? And I guess I don't mean organizations like nonprofits because nonprofits run off grants and then you have to compromise your politics because you need that grant money, right? I'm talking about organizations where people are meeting in their homes, meeting at the park, meeting on Zoom now, 2020, and you all are figuring out what you stand for and how you're going to fight back. So join organizations now, tomorrow, if there isn't an organization, build one. Um, And I think, like, I've seen successful coalitions. I think the most successful I've seen is in Columbus. There was always coalition building going on when I lived there. Like, if something happened, it was like, all of the organizations were talking and then they would like send representatives from each organization to have this coalition meeting. 
and then you would go back to your organization. The organization would vote democratically, like, yes, we have the capacity to be a part of this. And when you vote, yes, that means you're going to show up. Mm-hmm. And then after that organization voted, um, then you are a part of this coalition, and that's the that's where you put your energy. And I think that coalition building can be successful if it's solidarity work, if it's understanding that yeah, my organization this isn't our sole this isn't our sole purpose, but if y'all get this win, it's only going to help out our like struggle for liberation too, because like there's I mean there's no bad win. Right. Like, you know, like if, if trans people are no longer if like things are put in place for like trans mur- like trans murders of, you know, trans black women go down. That only that only gives a win to all of us. Like our lives are all better. Right. Yeah. If the difference of trans black women goes down. Um, right. And so I think if the coalitions understand that, that's when they run smoothly, because this arguing of, well, what about us? That that doesn't need to happen. Because if you join the if you join the coalition and this coalition just happens to be for getting queer sex ed in schools, you know that if they get that win, you're good too. Mm-hmm. And it's only gonna be I think sometimes when coalition building happens, it becomes this selfish like, Well, this this is what our organization stands for and I don't see any of that in this fight, so that means we're not joining in. And I think that's when it becomes dangerous because you don't really see yourself in like you don't really see your own win and your own material needs if we get queer sex ed in schools, right? Yeah. Um, so that's what I'd say about that. I think, I think, and I and I think like, well, I don't know. I'm just thinking about like at work, like, right? We all work. And mm-hmm. I think it's like the easiest example to use. I think if I'm at work and my boss comes for my trans coworker and fires her um, because she's trans, that, that shows me that they're coming they're coming for me next yeah um and i think we need to recognize that and i think that's what we were talking about before you hit record like um i like if they're oppressing anybody they're i promise they're coming for you Mm -hmm. it might be two years it might be five years from now but they're going to come for you because it increases your chances of being abused and it shows the people at your work the bosses that you're not willing to fight and so if you're not willing to fight for other people the bosses are thinking okay well then i can like lower your pay and because you didn't fight for that trans person you're not going to fight for this either yeah Uh, and so we have to fight for other people because it only improves our own lives yeah (sighs) i I really don't see that yeah go ahead Yeah, and I think, too, the thing that's really frustrating, I think, for me, because you're echoing this, right, is this idea that we have to be... I I value that you're saying, like, it will make my life better helping someone else's... Helping someone else make sure that they're okay, right? Yeah. But I also get really frustrated because I think as human beings who see suffering... Right. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. could be like my Aries optimism or whatever. I'm like, I get really angry at like the, there was like a whole hashtag movement the other day of like brown lives matter. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was yeah. like, 
like the anti-blackness, the racism, the bias that I see in the world. I'm like, how do you, how do you, how do you, why would you want that to exist? Yeah. That's just like me being in, in my altruism, right? Like, I, I don't want, like, it's not okay. And so I'm, yeah. I think I'm struggling with that. And you're right. You see it in coalitions, right? Like, you're not truly for me. You're not doing it in the way that I see fit. And so I, I struggle with that a lot. Like, how do we move yeah. in a space of like seeing the value in someone else? And not only that too, but like, I think the thing that like really pisses me off with all the shit that I've been seeing online is like, how do you dismiss somebody's experience? Like act willfully and actfully, like willfully and with like in, intention say, I do not believe you in your experience. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know how you break through that noise. I think yeah, that, that's yeah. been the hardest thing for me. Like, how do you break through the noise to build solidarity from a space without just telling them, well, it benefits you too. Right. Because they're like, cool. Well, so long as it benefits me, I will be here. But there, but yeah. like at the same time, like, how do you not believe someone? Like someone is yeah. telling you that that is, that is them. That is their experience. How can you willfully say no? Nope. Yeah. I don't well, believe I think you. Some of this was exactly, um, what Karen was just saying though, too, with, um, the building community. Yeah. Um, because when it's online and it's a faceless, nameless, you know, whatever, you don't know this person, it's easy to call someone a liar. Yeah. Um, for some people, it's it. I, I'm a little challenged by that unless there's an actual fact I can point to, not someone's life experience. Yeah. Um, but um, I think it is easier to dismiss people. And when you're looking face to face at someone you're in community with yeah. and you hear their life experience, it's it's different. And it's something we're losing um, mm. with the Internet um, and with the amount of time we spend online is uh, and even more so with this pandemic going on yeah. is that face to face experience. Um, yeah. I and online reminds me of the bathroom wall. Like, remember when someone would be like, so-and-so's a bitch. And then, and then underneath it would be like, and a whatever, and a whatever. And everybody would add their, <laughs> on the bathroom wall. Sometimes I feel like that's just online. Like that's, it's the bathroom wall where everybody seems to think that it matters that they added yeah. to the thread from like, you know, it's yeah. frustrating. Yeah, I do well, agree though that it is that community building. It is joining organization. It is like knowing who's in your community, um, and who's like literally being targeted by the state in your community. You know, but I will say, I mean, living in Tucson, it, it's it's been a struggle as a black person. I think Tucson, the state, the government acts like black people don't live here, mm -hmm. yep. so nothing is like prioritized for us. And then if there is any organizing, rightfully so, it's about border work, it's about abolishing ICE, um, which is beautiful. And I think that's why a piece of another piece of why I moved back, because I wanted to do that work. 
but that work is really it's really hard to find your place in that work if you're black because of Mm anti-blackness and because of people's refusal to connect the dots um between abolishing ice and abolishing the police you know um and so I, I think I've struggled with that, too, trying to figure out my place while organizing in the city um, because, you know, community's lacking. And, you know, what Regina Romero just did, she literally just tokenized like three or four black people, um, has not talked about black people at all before, put these black people in her press conference and had them say that, you know, what happened downtown, the rioting was awful, right? Yeah. And that's like the most I've seen about black people in this country when it comes, when it, in terms of the mayor, you know? So I think Tucson needs more of that solidarity work. Like why weren't any Latinx people asking her when she was being voted for, what are you going to do for black people in the city? And I do not remember that at all. Mm -hmm. I was just told that she's going to be the first Latinx mayor, the first, you know, a woman. So just be quiet, and then maybe you'll get some stuff afterwards. But that work to say, what are you going to do for black people, that was not done in the city. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the tough part. That's that's the hard part in coalition building, in solidarity work. Yeah, uh, is asking, like, how does my black sibling fit into this, into this moment that I'm yeah. pushing for? Absolutely. Exactly. And I'll tell you too, like, you know, I've gotten a couple comments uh, because I was super angry about what happened on Saturday. I lived downtown Mm -hmm. and I went to the sit-in, well, and I saw you um, and it was peaceful and it was 70 like students. And I'm like, this is this, like this intimidation, forced intimidation is so unwarranted. It, they were they are, they are children. They belong to somebody. They are somebody's child, and this is not okay. Yeah. And not only that too, but I think like I don't want to offend anyone, but I'm gonna say it. White liberal white liberalism angers me, right? Yeah. Oh my because gosh, there's yeah. like a blind spot that exists. So like. Mm-hmm. You know, when they boarded up the windows and they painted the big be kind. Oh, my gosh. This is all me and my girlfriend talk about because it anchors us so much. (laughs) I complained to whomever I could find. Yeah. Um, My husband and I were like, be kind to who? Because I'm tired of people telling brown and black folk that we have to behave, that we have to like that is racism in itself. That is racism. And these businesses that have moved downtown, that have gentrified downtown, which means increased cop presence to kick these homeless people out so that you can have your nice business, your nice business, and you're probably not hiring any trans people. Like, you want me to be kind to you. And you're probably not even giving your people a living wage. And all I have to do is be kind as black people are being murdered. That was just so wild to me. I couldn't believe it that that campaign did that. And I feel like white liberalism gives itself a lot of pats on the back, right? Like, well, that's not what we meant. And yada, yada. And I was like, look, you could have phrased it a 1000 different ways. You could have been like, be kind and racism. Be kind to black lives. Hey, there were so many, yeah, there were so many things that you could have done to elevate and amplify 
black, the black community that we live in, but because the belief is that we are liberal and the belief is, is that we're progressive. That only goes so far. I find this too. Uh Now, now you just got me ranting, but like, I find this, I find this too in, uh, parent communities of trans youth because Uh they're predominantly white. And so I, and so I'm good for the movement because I show progression and I show an openness to brown people. Right. So I'm good for it in saying, look, we have, look, we have marginal, like even intersectionality is in our team, you know, but then I challenge them with my brownness or my, or my saying like, no, like that when I see you say that you, that it, that it, you struggled and that you used to be an all lives matter person that smacks me because I've never been an all all lives matter person. (laughs) And so like, I have to process what that means. And I remember I was talking, I was, I was on a Facebook thread being like, that's really hard to swallow. And like, actually I would have asked the same question, reading your post saying that because you have a trans child, it helped you open up and see that all lives matter is not, is not right. Right. And I and this white and this white woman who was the mother of a trans child was like basically saying that because she had a trans child, she was like woke. And I was like, mm-mm, that is not how this works. Like even I as a POC cannot say that I am immune of bi- from bias. And, and that's really unfair to your trans kid to do that to your trans kid. Like because yeah. of you, I've changed. Right. Yeah, like you like no, you should have been a different, better person before me, even if you didn't have a trans child. Like, that's totally, like, not fair to trans kids when parents do that. And But I'll be honest, like, Daniel has made me be a better per- I've self-reflected in a way that, like, I might not have. And that, that um, does, that's, that says something about me. And that's a reckoning I have to think about myself, right? Yeah. Because, Which, I mean, that's real because you're, like, literally your material your day-to-day life changed by having a trans child. So, of course, you're going to see things in a new way that you didn't before. But I think for, like, the comment that you made about that specific white person saying that, like, for for all of your reckoning and for all of your radicalization to be around that is weird, right? Like, yeah. you know, instead of just, like, a piece of this growing process for you to becoming a person who fights for all, you yeah. know? And yeah. so, and so that's where like that white liberalism really mm-hmm. gets me. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah. I find that a lot in Tucson, right? There's a lot of yeah. look at how wonderful we are. Look at how, but like honestly, the redlining in the school districts still exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So red, we got redlining. Tucson has always been segregated. I grew up here yeah. in the '80s. It still is. It's segregated in a socioeconomic way. It's it's segregated racially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it has a lot of work that it has to do. Now, I wasn't, me as a brown person, I wasn't told vote Virginia Romero because she's going to be the first Latinx mayor. Yeah. I, it was like, well, she's progressive enough to mm-hmm. help us move forward, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think this is where the betrayal is because I'm like, she's bec- progressive enough. But when it came to dealing to needing to respond to this moment, she responded in the way a conservative white person would have. Yeah. Because that's what that riot gear told me. And that's what the paramilitary gear 
told me and the SUVs and Suntran waiting to pack, pick up protesters told me. Oh my God. I remember passing, we were walking to a protest and we passed the bus and this guy was like, be careful. Like that's all cops in that Suntran. And I just, it just shook me to the core. I was like, wow, how many buses do they have full of cops ready to turn on us? Mm-hmm. And why? Yeah. It's literally 70 students. Mm-hmm. Like, like it didn't measure. Yeah. It didn't measure what was happening. Yeah, that's my argument for the Democrats and the Republicans. At the end of the day, they're in bed with each other. I think that they come together when they need to to protect private property. They protect white supremacy and they protect capitalism by any means. And so, yeah, these like little things, how you would do things or maybe might be different. And at the end of the day, if protesters in the street, a Republican and a Democratic mayor would have handled it the same way. I mean, that was um, my so that, direct experience, right? Yeah, yeah. And Well, and I think we're seeing it on an even bigger scale in New York right now. Mm. Um, yeah. This whole, because I can tell you, I know some really conservative people in New York who absolutely hated Bill de Blasio for being this big liberal who was elected and was going to ruin the police. And his first thing he does related to protest is defend the police and yeah. defend police who ran over people yeah 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 ran over people they're all protecting their money and their private property you know that shit is wild like just yeah. the the police brutality that we are absorbing on television right now is like it's not it's not normal and we all need to like look at this moment as like not normal. Bill de yeah. Blasio's res- every press conference he's given in the last twelve days, I've been like flabbergasted. Yeah. Like, yeah. What happened to those morals you talked about and police reckoning when you were running? Mm-hmm. Um, which it's I mean, and locally I've been very disappointed because oh god, now I sound like Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. I'm very disappointed. No. no I, because when, when the chief of police came to Tucson, one of the big things about him that was highly promoted was how he, when he was in San Jose, worked with um, directly with Black Lives Matter and had them teaching classes and getting people to know each other and it brought down crime and all this stuff. But then your first chance to show that here you have people in riot gear storming things that kids are organizing. I mean, come on. That's just, that's not what, what we were sold. I just feel like, you know, as Maya Angelou said, when, when people show you who they are, believe them. Believe yeah. them. And they are showing believe all them. these Democrats. Believe they, them. They are showing, the police are showing who they are. In this moment, I had, um, you know, because I've had a lot of hard conversations and I had a friend reach out to me who's a police officer and they they're no longer my friend. They got mad at me. Um, and yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, OK, cool. We won't we don't have to be friends. Um, but they told me something that hit, it hit me hard. Like, I haven't let it go. But they were like, when I put on my uniform, people hate me. Uh-huh. And I was then like, take it off. I was like, they don't hate you. They are afraid of you. I am afraid of police. 
I've yeah. talked on this podcast a thousand times. I'm terrified of being arrested. The implications of that and what that would mean for me, I'm terrified of, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, they're not, you hold a power over people's lives. And if anything, that should be something that you carry with humility. And not only that, but now I have to question when you go into those communities, the bias that you already carry. Because if I go yeah. in, if I go into a room being like, all these people hate me, then I'm going into self-defense and preservation mode. Yeah. And so I can no longer, I am, they're now my enemy. And yeah. so what does that say about? Well, I think yeah. One, yeah. I think once a cop puts on that badge and puts on that uniform, you are no longer part of the working class. You have put on that uniform to protect the ruling class, to protect their ideology, to protect their property, not to protect me. And you are no longer me. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the experiences they go through as workers are different. Mm-hmm. They're like workers that are less likely to go through layoffs, they're less likely to do to not receive pensions. They're less likely to have shitty health care. And if you think about it, cops don't even make that much. Well, they make like 50, 60 a year. Mm-hmm. But they're, I mean, but what they're upholding is so much bigger. And so the only good cop to me, I don't care. And I'm talking about your dad, who's a cop. I'm talking about your uncle. I'm talking about your second aunt removed. is not a good person to me. Because if I went into work tomorrow and they said, I have a new task for you, you're going to be, you know, I work with LGBTQ youth. These youth come in, if they're homeless, you're going to treat them differently and you're going to talk down on them. If I was a good human being, I would quit my job because that's not what I believe in. So these, and if you think it's bad, only what we've seen on camera, you know it has to be way worse. For these cops to keep going back to work and not saying anything is disgusting. And if they were a good cop, if they were a good person, they would quit their jobs. And I wholeheartedly believe that because it is just disgusting. The st- I'm sure the stuff that they see and for them to just keep going back and keep going back is just outrageous to me. I was appalled by that whole, what was it like 93 people, 93 officers who resigned in solidarity with the two that pushed yeah. over the old man. I was like, really? That's that's what you're resigning over? Not yeah, that that's your like, line in the sand. <laughs> that's that's where you're drawing the line. Like, what? Yeah. yeah. Where's your humanity? Yeah. But this is pervasive in so many spaces. Like, this is pervasive in, and I'm sure Drew, you can attest to this bias in medical care. Yeah. Right. So yeah. when people are like, police aren't what. I think that the reality is that we're talking about systemic oppression and racism in all the ways in which it impacts people. Uh Because you're talking about the labor movement, policing, medical, like all of these ways in which politics and policy and, and, and the ability to thrive and be happy intersect, right? And to be healthy and have a life and... Yeah. Wait, you mean to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Yes, that thing. <laughs> that thing. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, I mean, do want to say, though, um, I don't know if we're ending, but I like promised myself I would get this in here. I think that um, 
I think a big piece of this is seeing ourselves as American. Um, I'm, I'm no longer an American. I no longer call myself an American. Okay. Um, I think because the U.S. is the biggest bully of the world, mm-hmm. the biggest terrorist, um, kills the most brown, black, and indigenous people out of any other country, they're imperialists. The reason that it's gotten this way is because the way that they treat other countries, mm-hmm. the way that they're, you know, even treating Venezuela right now, treating Cuba, sanctions, they're a bully. They're the biggest one yeah. to protect the empire. So I think for us to win wholeheartedly, we have got to be internationalists. We cannot just think of trans liberation or black liberation in terms of just the U.S. We've got to think around the world. Mm-hmm. How is the U.S. terrorizing other people? And if we work to win here, how can other places be liberated like Palestine, like Venezuela, right? I think we've got to think bigger because if we're only thinking about ourselves, we're not going to win because, you know, our, our material conditions tell us if I'm a Mexican person living in, you know, living in Tucson, I have to care about black people. If I want to win at all, that's the same thing around the world. We have to care about them and we have to put them in our conversations about liberation if we're going to have any type of win it has to be international yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i appreciate you saying that yeah for sure there's a lot to think about and consider yeah and i think it's so and i think that's the that's the part of the democrats that we don't talk about and i don't i don't i don't want to make this about voting but i think we have to include it because usually if a person is like you know, pretty liberal, they just vote every four years and then they might do some other things, right? So we're, we're talking about how to have solidarity. Um, but I think because Democrats get away with so much in elections every four years, it's because as people who live in this country, we don't have an international perspective. So mm-hmm. we're not looking at Biden, how he would bomb Arab countries, right? Yeah. We didn't look into what Obama would do to Palestine and how he would fund Israel so much money that now when Ferguson happened, Palestinians were on Twitter telling black people how to deal with tear gas because it was the same tear gas because the U.S. funded Palestine, like funded Israel, right? Like, so we're not seeing these connections. So it's not a part of our thinking and who we're voting for and what we're standing up for. And so we have got to think about that international piece, how it's not just about how they're treating us here, that it's going to come to bite us in the ass if we keep voting for people who continue to bomb other people around the world. And I think that's very, very serious. We have got to take that seriously. I think too, um, my husband and I were talking about, if you look at the television, who's in the streets, it's truly, the it's, it's a youth driven movement, right? Oh yeah. And I was telling him as like all movements, it's always the youth that um, always. will move always. and push the needle forward. And... Yeah, I went to a protest yesterday. It was planned by a 16-year-old black girl. Yeah. Um, and she got on top of her mom's car, and she just kept saying, like, I love y'all, I love y'all, I can't believe you're out here. It had to be, like, 100, 150 of us. Wow. Um, and it was just wild. I was like, oh, my God, by the time she's my age, she's going to be a communist. <laughs> I was like, yeah, she's I mean... already on her. Like, it is wild. At 16, I was not thinking about that. Because Getting just on like... a car and leading a protest. <laughs> just like, Drew, how you say, like, y'all make me feel a little bit old. Like I feel old in that I'm just sort of moving into this 
new political moment, right? And like, yeah. and so, but I'm seeing all these kids in the streets who have like, who have deep conviction about what they want of their world and what they want from us, the adults here, yeah. you know? And so it's powerful to see. And I'm like, if only I had had that kind of conviction at their age, what would yeah. I have done? Where would I be? Right. Yeah. Or how yeah. could I have contributed in a I feel like if I was thinking way. like that at 16, I'd be like, like with Asada Shikur, like escaped from the U.S. and Cuba or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's wild. That I mean, even the youth that come into my job, I mean, they're like, they know what imperialism is. Like they have a definition and they know how messed up it is. I didn't learn what imperialism was until like three years ago. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's beautiful. Yeah. And I think these moments are forcing young people to really reckon with like, mom, dad, like, what are y'all, what are y'all talking about? Cause this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. So before we end, I want to, we usually ask people, our interviewees, to give three basic takeaways that somebody who is just unaware and wanting to learn about allyship, solidarity, coalition building is like completely green to this. What yeah. are three simple things that they could do today? Go to a protest. Find a protest nearest you and talk to the people you're walking with. Have conversations with people you're walking with because that's where you will become radicalized. And I and I and I urge people that just don't go to a protest and walk. Talk to people around you and leave with some phone numbers. Because every protest I've gone to since George George Floyd, I've gotten at least five phone numbers a day. And now we're in signal chats. Now we're having conversations. Now we're building teach-ins so that we can all become politically educated while it because it, it's a it's tough it's like it's not it's not only being asked of you to show up to the streets but you also have to take action and you have to build your theory you have to build you have to be reading and so it's hard to do at the same time but like if i have to come up with three the first two go to protests and talk to people get numbers build community this is your chance we've been we've been in covid we've yeah. we always done this <laughs> complaints about how we don't have community we're isolated. Go talk to people and get their numbers and build something with them. If it's five of you and you just say, hey, we want to, we just want to have a study group. I heard about this cool Angela Davis book. It's only 50 pages. Let's read it together. Like do it. Um, and so I think that's what, like, that's what we have to do is we have to talk to people and it's not, because sometimes I see people go to protests, they don't talk to anybody and then they leave. But it's really your chance to understand why other people are out there and get your questions answered. And then if you're able, I think, um, you know, a lot of the I was so pissed off yesterday because a lot of these protests aren't accessible for like disabled people. People use wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. So I do want to say if you are able to do it, do it. If not, we've really got to learn to how to also center center disabled folks into our the way that we protest. Yeah. Uh, because I have seen that like people who are planning these protests often don't think about that that aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then our final question is who inspires you right now? 
That's what, when you said when you sent me this, I was like, shoot, I don't know <laughs> how many people. I think you know it's hard because I think you know, like I said, this country's so good at like in the individual, like you know, the one person. Like I, I think the civil rights movement, they put all like they said that the civil rights movement happened because of MLK and Malcolm X. Like that's such a lie. It was black women doing everything behind the scenes. Um, Can we talk about? so i just want to say before you say that i was uh i've been sitting i think about this often because when my stepdad passed away his brother was here with his wife and i was in the middle of like all these anti-trans bills were popping up and and she grew she lived in montgomery and grew up in montgomery and her mother would make dinner for mlk and all the organizers they would come and they would have dinner Wow. And and she was talking about how like after um, the bombing happened, they moved. They moved. Her mother got scared. But I asked her because I was like, oh, I want to talk to your mom. She's like, she'll talk about this all day. And I was like, how did your mom move past the fear? Yeah. Because it's got to feel overwhelming to be actively harmed every day and to keep Definitely. going outside. And and it's yeah. what we're seeing right now. Um, but I couldn't have predicted that in October. And so um, she was like, you just keep moving. My mom would say, you just keep moving. And yeah. it reminds me of of this Quaker saying, but it's it's also been attributed as an African proverb that says, when you pray, move your feet. So I don't know who it truly promised yeah. you originally, but I think that that's what I've tried to carry with me always is like when you pray, move your feet. And I think about these women who were feeding these men and opening their homes and making yeah. themselves vulnerable to harm in a time that was so uncertain. And you're right. Yeah. Like it is, it's driven by love. It's driven by, by this openness and willingness and by women who are moving in the backgrounds to ensure that yeah. progress is made. I appreciate yeah. you saying that. Sorry, I didn't mean to like. Yeah, no, you're good. You're good. That's that's an excellent story. So when you told me this question, I thought of like an individual, and then I thought of like a people. Um, and so I can start with the individual. The, the one person that inspires me like wholeheartedly. Um, she's rarely talked about. Her name is Claudia Jones. She's a black woman, um, and she was a Marxist. She was a socialist. Um, and she was like one of the first black women in the communist party who wrote so much good stuff. She was like the first black woman to really talk about intersectionality. Mm. She never gets this fame for it though. She talks about like these three oppressions and how they come together. Um, you know, gender, race, and class and being a black woman, a black working class woman. What does that mean? The U S actually deported her for all of her good work. And there's a book about her called To the Left of Karl Marx. And I didn't really get it before I started reading it. But she's actually buried to the left of Karl Marx in London. Wow. Which is wild. And I think, and, and so the writer, when they're talking about Claudia Jones, is showing that it, it takes a black woman, a, a revolutionary black woman's experience to expand any theory. Like, yes, Marxism is good, but, like, it has to be expanded by more oppressed people that Mar and, like, experiences that he didn't have. And she has she did such a good job of expanding Marxism and making black and brown and indigenous people understand 
what being oppressed really meant and how to fight for it. So I really, really recommend looking her up because she's one of the black women that's rarely discussed. Um, Cause you know, if you talk about socialism in this country, it's like, if I even bring up communism on the phone with my grandma, she's like, Chrissy, don't say that. They're listening. You know, there's this little fear. <laughs> but I, so I'm like, grandma, you're, you're fine. But like, it, I, I recommend you looking into her reading. She has like a lot of short articles. So she's like really accessible. She's like, a, she was a really good writer. But I think she was from Trinidad, so the U.S. deporter. I think she died in um, London. Um, and then, so that's like one person that I like would encourage people to read. I think as, like I said, it's so hard to, to talk about stuff like as an individual because it's not individual people leading these things. It's like big movements. Mm-hmm. But I think the a people that inspires me are Palestinians. Pa- and I And I know that this is a controversial topic. It's a topic that nobody like rarely talks about, but I encourage you to look and research yourself. Angela Davis has a really, really good book about Palestine and its connection to Ferguson and how black liberation is connected to Palestinian liberation. Um, but Palestinian people inspire me every day because their land, their indigenous people, let's be, let's like remind, let's remind ourselves of indigenous people in this country. Their land was taken from them. They had no say. Now they're in, um, now what is Israel, living, what is, which is originally Palestine. They're on these little pieces of land. I think, what, the Gaza, like, Gaza is Strip. only, yeah, it's, it's like so tiny. And there's like 3 million people mm-hmm. living on this small piece of land. And so many people were forced out of their homes, still have the keys to their homes, that they were forced out of in Palestine, living all around the world, mm. cannot go back home. And the people living in Palestine now cannot leave. If you're a fisherman and you're on the Mediterranean Sea, if you go out past a mile, they shoot you. And so it is it is a movement we have to look to because these people do not stop fighting. And it's not like they don't even stop fighting. They're having protests right now for black people. Yeah. Like they've got their own shit to handle and they're doing portraits of George Floyd on the apartheid wall that looks similar to the border wall because it's the same company building these same walls, right? Yeah. And so these Palestinian peoples, they do this thing. It's called the Great March of Return. I think it's every Friday at the same time. Their fa- they take their kids. They, their family goes to this wall, and they have a protest. And it's every week, and they continue to be shot down. Every week, people are dying by the idea, the Israeli Defense Forces, they're being shot down, and Palestinians keep saying we're going back. Like, we keep talking, like, we have fear of being arrested. Like, I have fear of being hit with a pellet gun, and these people are literally dying every week for their land. Like, we have no idea. And I think it's a people that we have to look to to really understand where this fight needs to go. And I think we also have to look to them because we have to recognize that if indigenous people are not a part of our fight, and if we're not talking about giving land back and resources back to indigenous people as well as reparations to black people, we're also going to fail. But it's just, I think, I think I've, I've honestly been inspired by Palestinian people so much since I've moved back to Tucson, because when you read about people going to the border in Palestine, it's this, it's like literally going to Nogales mm-hmm. and being on that border and seeing not only border patrol but police like all of these different things and now they've got cameras set up by the same companies it's just like it's wild like you have to go to the border and then go home and read about palestine 
because it's so similar it's terrifying but that is like a movement that is a people that inspires me um that continues to show up for black lives which is wild it's so wild that they're over there having protests and they're literally being oppressed and doing great march of return and stuff so i encourage you to look it up because i think that's another thing that you yeah, know, I don't have but, a follow up for that one. How about you? Yeah, that people was just good definitely one. know about it. <laughs> yeah. So that's a good one. Um, yeah. You know who has inspired me this week? And I hope it's because they're going to be growing. Um, is the gay bars that have acted as medics um stations and water stations Mm. um during these protests and are being attacked in ways that stonewall was um and the caveat that i have of i hope they grow is these bars have a lot of them have traditionally been very very racist spaces um and so i hope that they afterwards realize that they need to be a part of um, making the world a more equitable place. Yeah. Yeah, those have been bitter, like beautiful articles to read. Um, I'm going to, after this, I'm going to send you uh, a link to a podcast episode, Kristen, called... Uh, Making Gay History. Have you ever listened to it? No, I've heard of it, though. There's an episode about this woman named Ernestine Eckstein, who was talking about intersectionality in the early, like, or late 50s. And they have her interview, and she's an African-American woman who fell off. Nobody could find her afterwards. So she's, like, a very small part of, like, the movement. Um, And her words were, like, I listened to it and it just like blew my mind what she was saying at this time when, you know, I'll have to, Uh I'll send it to you. Um, Mine is going to sound like super cliche and I'm sorry, but like I, I, my, the person that inspires me today is Toni Morrison. I've been reading her recently and I recently watched her documentary and I put her on when I feel sad because mm-hmm. there's like a quiet strength in her words. Like she mm-hmm. sits in her power in such a way that is like, I don't know. I can't explain it. Um, but I also feel like a lot of people don't understand or don't know that she was an editor who elevated voices like Angela Davis and created space for um, these writers to write about black liberation and that being such a big contribution to the movement that they were seeing in the 60s and 70s. And so I think she's kind of a testament to how people can contribute in different ways, right? Um, and how people can create and elevate voices that they feel are necessary and needed. And so I think about her all the time and I value her writing and I value the work that she did. Um, and 
I think it just echoes what you were saying earlier, Kristen, is like what black women have contributed in creating. Oh gosh, yeah. And so, um, I, yeah, she's who inspires me this week. But yeah, it's I know funny. It's, it's like her novels, her novels read like political education for me. Like they read like, mm-hmm. you know, like if it's anybody who's out there is like, I cannot sit down and read a book about why things work the way they work 200 pages like read Toni Morrison like her her books are like beautiful novels but it's like you come out learning so much about like what liberation means and all of those other type of questions we have right now beloved was so painful oh my gosh feeling this deep sadness that I had never like I, I don't even think there were words to it I just knew that it I felt such deep discomfort right and like sadness in reading beloved and like and then I watched the movie and then I felt it all over again you know like and so so you know I just um yeah Mm -hmm. and when I need to be reminded too like I remember being a little girl and watching the color purple over and over again like I watched the color purple and then I remember reading it later on and being like well it needed some stuff it was missing some stuff um but I think about, do you, have y'all, have either of you listened to Kendrick Lamar's All Right? Yeah. I think, I don't know if he meant to, but like I hear Oprah's line like all my life, right? And that's what he opens that song with. And I think that we see this kind of call for, it's like a battle cry almost. And I feel like we're living in this moment where it's actually happening. Right. Yeah, and Knoxville, like, Tennessee at protests, that would be like our chance. People would like scream that. And in I, the middle, like after we took over a street, we would scream, we gonna be all right. And but it even, would just like become a joyous moment in the street. But even in that, in that, like all my life I've had to fight, right? Like I remember seeing that scene in the movie and being like, being like seven, eight and, and not understanding what that meant, but like, knowing that it meant something important something so small and seeing that character live at that intersection and that it's still prevalent and exists today and then I hear that song and I hear that all my life I've had to fight and it just hits me every time and I don't know if that was a purposeful line I don't know (laughs) I don't know but I'm like yep I see it. I see it. And I, and I, I, you know, I don't have words for it, but we are definitely living in a moment of like, like this is the moment if change will happen. Yeah. This is a wild moment. I appreciate Uh, you. And I'm sure I'll see both of you later. Yes. Thank you so much, Kristen. This is great. If y'all just want to call me and talk, let me know. It doesn't have to be a podcast. <laughs> I was so excited when you said, I love to talk on the phone, because I, I love, love to talk on the, the phone, phone, too. My best friend, Rachel, she's probably sick of me talking about this. So I'll call y'all next time. <laughs> I'm like, let's talk on the phone. I think I bother Drew all the time. I'm like, hey, you want to chat? So Yeah, I did want to say before we're done, um, like I think I brought this up before. We're like planning a, a teach-in on police terror. Yes. Um, it's going to be on June 20th and 21st, each day from 5 to 7 on Zoom. 
Um, so if you're interested, you can shoot me an email. Is it okay if I give my email now? Absolutely. Sure. Okay. It's, yeah, just if folks want to email me to get the um, to get the registration link, or maybe when y'all post this, can I give you the registration link to put in the post? Absolutely. Okay, maybe we can do that then. I'll send y'all the registration link. Sounds good. Thank you so much for taking yeah, the time. Yeah, of course. I appreciate it. All right. We'll see you later. All right. Have, have a good day, day, y'all. Take care you of yourself. Too. Bye. Bye. Bye.